Welcome back, guys. This is Ecclesial Thoughts, Episode 2 of 2020. I am super excited to be back in the swing of things. This is a new year, new topics we are going through, and honestly, with the uh, arrival of baby number two on the way, baby Augustine, uh, life's about to change quite a bit for us, and so I'm know you guys are out there living your life and moving on as this January comes to a close soon, but we must adapt and move on, which brings us to week number two, episode number two of 2020. I don't even know actually how many episodes I've done so far. Uh, I'd have to go all the way back to when the station asked me to create a show uh, for Wednesday nights. Now, that's all fun and awesome, and maybe, you guys, I have something excited to tell you, that we are now a podcast format, thanks to Anchor.com. They have, uh, some of the other people that I know have used Anchor, and they allow you to host a podcast on their site for free, and then they also put it out to other platforms, such as iTunes, podcast as well as Spotify and some others. So right now I'm waiting to hear back from iTunes, but Spotify I'm already up and running and have episode one as well as on the actual Anchor site. So if you guys can't listen to this on when it airs on the Live 365 app or on KKTYTigerCountryRadio.com, if you can't catch us there at 8 o'clock on Wednesday nights, you can always download and listen on uh, either Anchor or Spotify, and hopefully, if you uh, get your, if you're an iTunes user, uh, you can look at the Apple iTunes and Podcast Store, and hopefully, I'll be on there within the next couple weeks. But without further ado, let's let's jump in. As always, we have to thank our wonderful sponsors. We've got. Uh, as always, Better Homes and Gardens Realty Southwest Group here in Republic, Missouri. Cards and Stripes Games over at 1206 U.S. Highway 60 over there in the strip mall by Purple Burrito and Classic Rock Coffee. If you guys, like I said, have a family, that is a great place to get good games. Uh, some of my favorite games happen to be Exploding Kittens. Uh, I would love to get a couple of expansion packs. Haven't quite got the nerve up to go and buy them yet because of how rarely we play. But, they're an awesome store. Uh, if I had more time to delve into things like Magic or Dragon Ball Super, which they start, uh, apparently have started hosting tournaments or nights for, I would totally be in for that. Uh, that's my ner inner nerd coming out in me. Also, Troy's Workshop. You can find him at troysworkshop.com. It's custom CNC woodwork, so placards and some other stuff. I know the station has given away a couple different things of those over the, the time that we've been here. And then uh, three of our newer sponsors, and we have more on the way from what I've been told this year. We've got Efficient Integrations Sound and Security Systems. They can do things as in upgrading your sound system in your car or putting a new security system in, or even for the wife or kids, a new remote start. We'd love to see you guys show some love to them. We also have DM Graphics. can do any of your graphics needs, as well as the Methodist Manor in Marionville, Missouri. 
So now that we've got our sponsors taken care of, and, and I don't say that as a chore, but we do really do appreciate them, let's jump in to week two. Now, week two, or last week, I, I discussed that we were going to be going over very briefly the core doctrines of Christianity. Now, whether you are a longtime churchgoer or you are a new churchgoer, or maybe you don't even subscribe to Christianity, many people don't fully understand the doctrines of Christianity. And that and that's not a shame. That is just it takes effort. Just like learning in any area of life does, learning which is what doctrine basically is. Doctrine just means teaching. Learning a teaching of any sort learns things. If you do yoga, you have to learn the teachings of yoga. If you are a Buddhist, you would learn Buddhist doctrines. If you are any religion, you would learn those religions' doctrines. And so, last week, I introduced our subject matter for the year, which is going to be 50 or 50-so doctrines of Christianity that all Christianity should subscribe to. Now, last week, we went over the first one. We're, we're going to go over the doctrines of Scripture first. And so last week, we discussed the doctrine of inspiration. Now, the doctrine of inspiration, as we talked about last week, is that God is the author of all Scripture. And therefore, Scripture would then take on his characteristics. And we didn't go very deep into that, which is what some of these other doctrines do. They We, we start out with this nucleus of God is the author through humans using their personalities, their words, their language to tell his story. And there, while there are some dictative passages where God has dictated things to the author to specifically write, such as, Thus saith the Lord, or the Ten Commandments, there are others, like narratives and psalms and all these other things that use the writer's um, imagine, not imagination, but it uses their personality. It uses them as human beings. Just like when I preach, I do not preach as if Jesus would. I preach using my known skills. I preach with my own history intact. I preach with my own flair, so to speak. And everybody does it. So that was that was the doctrine, the doctrine of inspiration, that God inspired the Holy Scriptures, the 66 books we call the Bible. Sorry if you're a Catholic, I do not subscribe to the apocryphal books, just because the genres themselves are very different and the way they were wrote and, and just a whole host of things. And we're going to actually get to the canonicity of Scripture later on. Uh, so, what... Moving on, though, uh, because it was inspired by God, we consider Scripture to be trustworthy. And that is why we, we do what the Bible says. So, because of that, we don't have to worry about men having added anything to the Scriptures, such as in the Mormon Book of Doctrines or the Pearl of Great Price. We don't have to worry about, uh, as in the earlier centuries of, of Catholicism where popes can make bulls and other things that become dogma. They are infallible because a council or a pope said so. We don't have to worry about that. All we have to worry about is that the 
original writings of the apostles, the prophets, uh, and those who wrote the scriptures, that those are the the inspired words of God. And the New Testament is one of the most historically reliable documents on the planet. So, from a secular point of view, there's no reason to discount the New Testament. On the other hand, we can also see, because it has so much textual criticism behind it, and and it matches up so well because we can go very, very early into the past, we don't have to have as much worry that what we're reading today is not what was written back then. There's always going to be some aspect that we have to take on faith, but because we have so many copies, we are confident that what we have is close, if not to the original meaning of the text. So, tonight we're going to follow this idea of God inspiring those original texts and carrying them to us to the doctrine of inerrancy, or otherwise known as the truthfulness, the doctrine of truthfulness of Scripture. So now, inerrancy basically means that the word cannot fail, that it is incapable of error, the scriptures. And that is what I believe, as long as what most, if not all, of Christianity has believed historically. Now, there are plenty of issues that have to be taken up of KGV-onlyism, not KG, KJV, King James Version onlyism, or which which languages are are better, and all of these other things. But in their original forms, like I said, the inspired doctor, the inspired scriptures, in their autographs, they are without error, and they will not fail. And so that is what I stake my reputation on as a pastor. What I stake. Rep, uh, stake my reputation on as a Christian is is that the, the truthfulness of Scripture is not about me, but it is about, are they true? I don't have to defend them. I can just let Scripture defend Scripture. So, at, last week I ended with what Jesus' view on the inspiration of Scripture was and, and how he saw it. And so it is fitting that we're going to continue that theme because realistically, as Christians, we do. We need to know what Jesus believed and what he taught. So, what does he think about the idea of Scripture? Is it inerrant? Is it truthful? So, if we're looking at the very words of Jesus, then we have no better place to start off with and then in John chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer Jesus very clearly states sanctify them in the truth your word is truth now i'm reading from the english standard version and there's other versions as most of us well do know now when he says sanctify them in the truth and your word is truth he is talking about his word. The, the W there in the sentence is not capitalized. Whereas, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that means something different. So when he's saying, your word is truth, and when in John 1, Jesus says, I, or when it says, in the beginning was the word, and that word is capitalized, that W is capitalized, referring to Jesus, while they can both be synonymous here, because Jesus is, Jesus is truth, he says in John 14, uh, 6, I believe, 
that your word is true. Let me just double check that first. I don't want to lead you guys astray here. Open up. Sorry, guys. There we go. Yes, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Whoever, uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. And so when we look at that, we know that Jesus is truth. And then in John 17, himself, he is saying that God's word is truth. So that word is therefore referring to the scriptures, because it's not capitalized, not himself. Now this may seem like a very broad stroke because he just says word, but we can also point to multiple times in Jesus' ministry where he points to, to the Old Testament and believes what the Old Testament says. Now, many secular people will say, well, Jesus was a great guy and he was a great teacher, but I don't think he was the son of God. I don't, and, and if you, and if those people disagree with the book of Genesis and they say he was a great teacher, they've got a problem because he thinks the book of Genesis is, is true. For instance, in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6, Jesus talks about Adam and Eve. And in the early chapters of Genesis and marriage, uh, and it says, A Pharisee came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, fle two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Then again in Matthew 24, in talking about the day and the hour, um, he references back to Jonah. In verse 37, it says, For as were the days of not Jonah, Noah. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So here, not to get off on an uh, uh, eschatological topic, but here we see Jesus referring that his return to earth is going to not take place during this war or this terrible time, but it's going to be taking place like Noah all of a sudden in, in a moment in history where things are going well where they're giving in marriage, they're eating and drinking, marrying, and all of these things. So he obviously thinks the flood was true. And then here in John 5, verses 45 through 47, it says, Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So again, point now, this, now we've jumped out of Genesis here. And we are pointing towards Moses, the Pentateuch. So Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers and Deuteronomy. They're the last four books of the Pentateuch, where Moses is the central figure up until he hands the reins off to Joshua. He believes that Moses was a real person, as did the Israelites and the Jews of the time. And then lastly, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, we reference the oh-so-small book in the Old Testament of Jonah, in which there is only one line of 
of prophecy. Uh, that's one of my favorite tidbits of knowledge. All the rest is this narrative about Jonah himself. And it says in verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So here Jesus is, is futuristically talking about himself and how he is going to die and then raise again. So what does all this have to say? What we're saying here is that if Jesus himself is willing to quote these scriptures as truth, then as Christians we should also have no problem in quoting scripture as true. We should let no one disparage us as we believe the same thing that Jesus did. So if, if we're called as Christians to believe what our Lord and Savior believes, we must then, he, as, if he quotes these scriptures about Adam and Eve, Moses, um, Noah, and Jonah, then we know at least those areas we must believe him about. So now we, I mean, that's a, a brief overview. There are so many times, and, and I referenced this last week, where Jesus constantly asks the question, is it not written? Have you not read the scriptures? He, he takes scriptures to be the highest standard next to himself and God because he believes they were a inspired and b obviously as as we can tell here we can believe he believes that his the word here is is not fallible it's it's inerrant it, it won't fail it's not lying so what what do we have to say here for this well, there's a couple different affirmations of this, and, and within this doctor are five areas that as Christians or as non-Christians, we have to discuss. Uh, this doctrine states that, that Scripture is has a truthfulness to it, that it is inerrant, that its consistency of inerrancy uh, continues within the phenomena of Scripture. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. And then that it also... Uh, cannot uh, is it, it is infallible, and so those are the four, and then the last one's going to be a, a topic of uh, pitting infallibility versus inerrancy, and we're going to talk about that. So, first affirmation that we have to make in this doctrine is the truthfulness of it. So, when we looked at Jesus's own words in John seventeen. He believes that the Word of God is true. So whatever Scripture speaks on is going to correspond to reality. And that that what that means is the Scripture is not going to lie to us. Issues like creation and miracles can be believed by Christians with an assurance, just like Jesus did in the Gospels. Why? Because Jesus says his word is true. And if he's quoting the scriptures of his day with that confidence, then we can have the confidence in that, they, that it is truthful as well, and that the scriptures aren't going to lie to us. Jesus would not do that. And, and to have this caveat, I, I do want to say that the Bible is not a textbook. I mean, it is, a, it is a theological textbook, so to speak. It, it teaches us about a loving God whose entire story was to love humanity and bring us into a closer relationship with him and how we have been constantly trying to run away. 
So, I mean, it is a great story. It is a great textbook to learn about him. All of the, all of the systematic theology textbooks that are out there have one source, and that is the Bible. They have to take all of the scriptures and have them make sense. And that just comes from reading the Bible over and over and saying, well, this verse means this in this context, and it also aligns with this verse over here. So so it is. So, But since the Bible is not a textbook, and anything other than itself, we would never expect of the Bible to teach us about atoms or germs or cosmology to know the specifics. But just like when we record something, like I'm recording this now, uh, when we record something that happens, we as humans can be wrong. God's superintended scripture, like we talked about, his inspiration, so that when scripture records something, it's not wrong. Which brings us to our next point. Inerrancy of itself. So, inerrancy means, as Allison says in his book, which is, uh, Greg Allison is, uh, his book that we discussed last week, go back to the podcast episode there, learn what material I'm kind of using as a quick overview for these, these conversations we're having. Uh, in his book, it says, inerrancy means that scripture never affirms anything contrary to fact. So when we're talking, uh, the Bible is not going to... Uh, the Bible will not affirm things, untheological themes, unless they are true. So, if it's a genealogy or an account of history that the Bible records, that means it is true. It's not going to be wrong. Uh, now, this thought process of it not being a textbook, or uh, you know, the Bible can be wrong because it's only trying to teach us about God puts this idea of, well, science can be right and the Bible can be right, but they can, you know, the Bible can be wrong in certain areas. But as we look at this logically, if Jesus says his words are true, and we see that scripture, as this definition of inerrancy says, that it's not going to affirm anything contrary to fact, this means that what we can do is say that if it's talking about a historical reign of a king, it it's going to be a, a, a true representation. It's going to be true in and of itself. And so any current spots, what we're what I'm going to say here is that any current spots where the Bible says something different than what man says, I believe will eventually be found in the favor of Scripture rather than man. There have been plenty of examples of archaeology where the Bible story has been said, well, that can't happen. That couldn't have happened. And then years later, we find make a discovery, and oh, well, yes, it did happen. That's why Scripture is one of the best source documents. We can learn things from it. The Bible itself uses history as its timestamp and witness so that it's not like any of the other uh, great books of other religions that kind of just take place in this ether of, you know, the gods created this, you know, this is how the the story of creation started. No, in the book of Genesis, we get real people, real places, real times. And as we move into Exodus, Leviticus, number, we just get more and more detail, all the way up to Jesus giving timestamps. 
And so again, I believe that in the inerrancy of the Bible, if the Bible comments on it, and it's a point of contention, the Bible will always come out on top. And there's caveats about genre and other things that have to be got thrown into it, but I don't have the time, and I'm going to kind of wrap that up in a minute. So, number three, the consistency of inerrancy goes along with the phenomena of Scripture. So, when we look at Scriptures, we have to realize that they are written in various different ways. So, we have a couple different ways. we got uh, five of them five ways that some people have issues with. So we have number one, ordinary speech. The Bible is written in the plain language of the day in which it was written, not some highfalutin uh, theological talk. Now Paul does some really great exposition in the New Testament, but it's always in the common language. He does not have to be this high-minded person. Uh, so the, he the, the scriptures are in the common language in which they were intended for the masses and written. Therefore, our my belief is that whatever scripture we have, uh, the English modern English we have, it needs to be that. Uh, there's historic confessions of faith, like the London Baptist Confession of Faith, the 1689, which says that the scriptures must be in the vulgar language of the day. And the vulgar is not a bad word in that sense. Vulgar just means common. And so 300 years from now, whatever the English language sounds like, they need to have a Bible that ex that is translated from the Greek and Hebrew to that English, so that they may understand in the plain language. So the Bible was written in ordinary speech. It'll use all the colloquialisms, um, frame of reference thought. It's going to give all of these things. The culture, you can see it change throughout the book because it's written from different ordinary language perspectives. So number two, we have loose quotations. Now this is kind of like uh, the, uh, a New Testament thing, but we see it in the Old Testament as well. But people in Scripture quoting other people of Scripture. Now, this is the exact same thing we do today, and we don't call ourselves infallible. Right? We, 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 or maybe that was a bad way to phrase that. We don't claim to be infallible, but we would not say that somebody is lying if they just gave a loose representation of what happened. Right, So like if I'm in the middle of teaching or talking to somebody and a scripture comes to mind that I need to tell them, I'm probably not going to have it memorized you know, in the original Greek language or in the, in the English language for that matter. But what I do have is I've probably read it enough times that I, obviously it comes to thought and I, I can say it, I'd give the gist of the verse and stay faithful to it, and, and it's a loose quotation, right? So what we see in the New Testament is a lot of this. Right, We see a lot of Paul and the apostles quoting Old Testament scripture very loosely, so it's called an allusion. Um, so they are alluding to another scripture at which they are talking about, but they never directly referenced it. So number three, we've got the translations of Jesus' sayings. And I'm not going to lie, when I started to prepare for this podcast... I had never even thought about this. I'm so used to the just the Greek, the Greek, the Greek. I took a you know I took a year long class uh, in beginner's Greek, and so that's all I can think about. But the thought that Jesus taught in Aramaic had never occurred to me, and I knew this, but it still had never put it put two and two together. 
So what Greg Allison says in his book is, uh, we have the exact voice of Jesus. The Greek versions of his Aramaic sayings are faithful renditions of the words Jesus actually spoke. And the best way I can portray this is, uh, just because Jesus spoke one language and the Bible was written in another, does not mean it. You know, there's there's anything lost in translation here. It's no different than somebody at the UN speaking to the masses and their on-the-ground interpreters telling their people what's happening. They're getting the, the real-time, live interpretation, the exact words of that person just in their language. And so, uh, you know, something that I that comes to me to mind is this is where it, we have to take on faith, right? We believe that. And this is where systematic theologies or theologians can come under fire because we are told we're trying to shove God into a box. And quite often, once we've fleshed out all of these amazing things about God and we find something that's a mystery still, it's amazing because we do. We get to take this on faith that because we believe God in all of these other areas, we can believe God in this one small spot and still seek him out in it. And so I can say that just even though I haven't thought about it, and even though we do have to deal with Jesus teaching in Aramaic and us receiving it in Greek and then in English later on to our day, I have total faith that the authors who were inspired by God himself to write gave the most exact representation of Jesus in the Greek language. So now, the last two things that I affirm is that there's different ordering events and different parallel accounts. And these two go together for this very reason, because they're like New Testament exclusive because of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we like to call the synoptics. They follow the story of Jesus pretty, pretty close to each other. Right, you would your teacher would think that you were plagiarizing off of one another. John has a couple of spots where he uh, includes some stuff, but his is a, a more theological, more spiritual view of the gospel itself. That there's a, a different meaning behind the writing. And so, when in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when these same stories pop up at different spots in the gospel, what we're saying by different ordering of events is that those things are not wrong. Uh, the method of Jesus' day was for the rabbi to walk around and teach people, and it would often teach the same lesson multiple times. So that's one thing we must take into consideration. Also, we have to take into consideration that these people, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, are all writing for different reasons. So everybody has a different audience. So when they're in the midst of writing this account of Jesus' ministry and life, things are going to be placed to make the point better. And that's not saying they're wrong, and that's not saying they're lying. Because, again, that takes some historical knowledge of what did rabbis do back at that time, and how did they teach. And so, the different ordering events gives me no trouble. That's one of the least things that I have a trouble with. Um, and then, secondly, related to this matter of different ordering of events, is the fact that there's parallel accounts of something. But they're different at the same time. So the 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 one that always gets attacked, and the the reason why this part's probably written is because of Judas's suicide. After Judas has sold Jesus to the Pharisees for his silver, he goes out and hangs himself in the book of 
Luke, I believe. And then, later on in the book of Acts, no, it's Matthew. Yeah, in the book of Matthew, he goes and hangs himself. And then in Acts, it talks about how he falls forth and bursts on the ground. So what this would logically dictate is, A, not that they're lying, but if one's uh, hanging himself and then he finally, you know, is either A, cut down, or the rope breaks from the weight, uh, once you've got hot and cold and hot and cold and expanded and looked all the nasty stuff that nobody wants to hear, you know, when you hit the ground, you're going to, you're going to flop all over the, I mean, it's just going to be disgusting. There used to be this awesome video on YouTube of a whale getting cut open because it was decaying and it was going to explode. And as they cut it open, it just, oh, it's awesome. You should go look it up. So we've talked about these five affirmations of the five, these five voices within scripture that we have to understand. Now, what we did not discuss, and there's a whole nother section of time that would be taken to explain, is the different genres within Scripture. I already mentioned poetry, narrative, didactic and teaching literature, uh, apocalyptic literature, all of these things, which in those, I believe, are infallible, inerrant, and also, they have to be interpreted according to that style. You can't take the one template and apply it to another, which that's a whole other story. So then we have, within the affirmation of inerrancy, is the affirmation of infallibility that Scripture cannot fail. And now for most of the church history, infallibility and inerrancy have been the same thing. And so the problem is people started to dissect it because uh, that it, it, it can be without error in certain manners, but it can be with others. So it can fail in some aspects. And that's generally like in the scientific realm, people would say it can fail us or in the historical realm. And, but in the salvation aspect, it is totally true. And we talked about how last week that's a thread that just falls apart. And so then you have this problem then of pitting inerrancy and infallibility together. And like I said, the best way to explain it is once you start to pull one, everything comes undone. If you pull infallibility out and say it means one thing instead of another and there's errors in the Bible, then how do we know where the errors start and stop? We can't just say that the, the spiritual parts are true because we don't know that. We don't know if the there's errors in the Bible, how it's not. And that's why theologians and other people try their best to um, match Scripture to all, the way we see the world. Not not in a, we're going to match the Bible to us, but we want to know that the Bible is accurate in all things. And just questioning it does not make you a bad person, because you want to, to assert your faith and you want to believe these things. So these are all the affirmations about the inerrancy of Scripture. So affirmations, let me let me just go over them real quick. Um, we have that inerrancy means it's truthful. Inerrancy in itself means that it will never err in anything. Uh, that no matter what the language is, uh, the third affirmation is no matter how it's speaking, whether it's ordinary speech, loose quotations, it is still inerrant. It can speak normally and be okay. It doesn't matter 
like 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 I said, it is still inerrant despite the different ordering events. It is inerrant despite the divergent parallel accounts, not because they are uh, opposed to one another, but because they work together to make it even more comprehensive. And lastly, we cannot allow this error of um, infallibility in one area creep in because inerrancy and infallibility work together. They they were one thing for so long, and now they are just uh, they are puzzle pieces. They are cogs in a wheel that keep the the idea of the inerrant, infallible Word of God moving. So, some major things for you guys to think about when it comes to avoiding. So, people can, and we discussed this a little bit last week, deny the inspiration of Scripture as not being holy or from God. So, if you deny the inspiration of of it by God, that automatically means you start letting inerrancy fall to the wayside. Because if God didn't inspire and superintend it to be perfect, then there has to be errors in it, and therefore it cannot be a, a perfect book. And so, if you see somebody trying to say, well, uh, it wasn't really written by God, it wasn't really written by the Holy Spirit, then you have to start asking that person questions. Where are the errors in the Bible? How would we know where it would start and where it would stop with the errors and everything? And they can't just draw a fictitious line in the sand and say, well, here it is, without you trying to blow holes in it. Uh, another major error to avoid we already talked about was pitting infallibility against inerrancy. Those two things work together, not against each other. There is no such thing as an infallible word of God without it being an inerrant word of God. There's never, never a thing such as an inerrant word of God without an infallible word of God. It cannot err and it cannot fail. It cannot correspond to anything but truth. Therefore, it will never fail us in any of these areas. areas. And lastly we must, um, people will claim there are errors in the Bible, such as with Judas. And I'm not a scholar in any uh, respectable term as far as apologetics. But that's why we have scholars who are uh, in apologetics. I listen to Dr. William Lane Craig, Ravi Zacharias, great, great authors. Uh, uh, Oh... Dr. Turek, and I can't think of what his first name is. Christopher Turek, maybe? Uh, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, uh, is, is one of his books. Uh, but I have not heard a problem from Scripture where people have said, well, there's an error in the Scriptures, and them not be able to defend it. Um, and I believe, as I stated at the beginning of this program, that whatever is said in the Bible, if there is a, if it is not misunderstood... But if it is understood correctly, exegeted correctly, and it differs with the word of man, the word of scripture will always come out on top. So what does this have to do with your daily life? Uh, Do a quick little, how does this practically impact us? It means that we can trust all the scriptures. And I know I said that last week. We can trust all the scriptures. Now, some of this, this is a pride check because it, there are scriptures that tell us that it, we cannot do certain things. And that means we have to stop. That means we must repent. That means we must turn towards God and live a life in the way uh, he would have us live it. This, that, I mean, that's what it means. It, it means we can't turn away from him. So, when you 
are in your quiet place, your closet, your quiet time, all of these things, you can trust all scriptures. There's nothing that when it says to do it that is not going to be good for you. Okay? So trust all of the scriptures. They are truthful. And, and God says he's going to preserve his word. And so I don't think that we have been conned for over a millennia into thinking that we have scriptures that are not there. I trust in the, the sovereignty of our God to get us the word of God so that we may know who his son is. The other thing is, as I said, you're going to have people who come up to you and say that scripture is not true. So what does that make you have to do? That means you as a Christian, or even if you're a critic out there, if you're listening to this and you're like, no, there's no way it's true. I, I, I challenge you to go do some digging. Like I said, Dr. Ravi Zacharias, uh, Dr. William Lane Craig, um, Chris Turk. Go to their YouTube pages. Go go to their forums that they have and, and just listen to the answers and don't have a big head. Like, I get accused by my my brother sometimes of being a know-it-all because I have a master's degree. I, I honestly try. So, try hard not to. Uh, I don't ever try to puff myself up. But, especially when I'm with my brother, those things just... I just assume and, and, and can turn into this person, especially when we talk about biblical stuff. I let him do it when he's on a sports pedestal because he does. He does know-it-all. And I have no problem admitting it. He knows Patrick Mahomes' stats probably better than I do. So... But would challenge those claims. Have people point them out. Have people point out the errors and the contradictions with Scripture. And eagerly dig into the Bible. Do your own research. Go to those places to learn what the Word of God has to say. So, I know this is a little bit longer episode for you guys. We're at uh, about 11 minutes past what I would have liked to do because I'm trying to do a shorter uh, show this this year uh, and season in my life, especially with introducing a new baby. Um, but check me out on Spotify. Hopefully I'll be on iTunes soon or a podcast, whatever it is. Uh, check me out on Anchor. You can go to my Facebook page. I'll post updates for it. Um, and as always, guys, uh, thank you for being a part of this. And I can't wait to hear from you guys or see you next week.